Hello again, you're back with the Lunk Radio Communicate. This is Communicate number 9, and it is January 24th, 2009. Now, introductions first. Yes, that's right. My name is Jackson Meredith, and I am joined once again by... Andrew. Brian. Monty. Now, we've come to the table today. Our guy Brian has written an essay, which has been posted to our message board, Conquering the Divide, which you can... Find very quickly by navigating our homepage at lunkradio.org. And Brian has written an essay called Criticisms of the Left. And we're going to be talking about that today. Why, why, why did you write this essay, Brian? I just had this in mind. I was going to highlight what I felt were the biggest obstacles to the left being taken seriously and becoming a significant political force. I just wanted to talk about what was, what I was thinking about as uh, were, were these obstacles. I guess one thing I should specify is is what I mean by the left, because I think that there is some confusion when it comes to political jargon. Um, and a lot of that is perpetuated by the media when they talk about the left, and really they're talking about centrists like the Democratic Party. When I'm talking about the left... I'm going to be referring to the left end of a political spectrum. On a on a political spectrum, you have a left side and a right side divided in the middle. And the left end was more concerned with with socialism, and the the right end would be more capitalistic, acquiring wealth for oneself and for a handful of others. The left would be about providing for all of humanity. Uh, not really based on any sort of criteria. Um, and basically, in the essay, I was focusing on, on the radical left, um, not so much the closer to center left, like social democracy or, or um, social welfare states like Sweden. One of the first ones I, I highlighted in the essay, the idea of strict pacifism, the idea that all resistance should be nonviolent, and this is kind of reluctance to to even be defensive or even talk about using force to defend oneself. And I, I do think that a lot can be accomplished with nonviolent struggle, and that, of course, would be ideally what we would all want, but I do think that in order for us to become a powerful movement that's going to be taken seriously, we're going to have to be able to stand up to bullying and, and it's not letting ourselves become trampled by other groups or government repression that is um, trying to stop what we're, we're trying to accomplish. I should say that the whole essay is coming from the perspective of a leftist. I consider myself to be a leftist, so this isn't this is focusing on internal criticisms and not other things that affect the left, like government repression and things like that, but but criticisms of what I see to pro be problems within the movement itself. And I just wanted to go around and see what everybody else thought about this idea of strict pacifism and just the idea that we cannot use force at all, or we shouldn't use force at all. And I know most people take that position because of what they view to be, or, or philosophical or religious reasons, but um, I think that there's other reasons. Some people just are just opposed to using violence, or they think that more can be accomplished without it. Not really. I would consider myself probably a, a practical pacifist in that I wouldn't want to use violence unless the situation called for it. But when you need to defend yourself <coughs> or when you're up against a violent situation, sometimes violence is a valid option. And I think you only limit yourself and what you can do as an organization if you say that pacifism is the only way and that violence is always ethically wrong in black and white moral sense. I would say I, I agree with I do consider myself to be a pacifist in, in most cases. I, I would seldom advocate the use of violence, except in the situation where, like you said, like when you're being opposed by violence... And, and there's a, an immediate threat, then I think it's it's extremely necessary, not even for a practical reason, but just if you want to have a movement with any force behind it, you need to recognize that 
if you're going to be opposed by violence, sometimes you need to respond with violence. So where, where do you think this idea of what, what you're terming as, as strict pacifism, where does this come from? A lot of it comes from re religious movements. A lot of religious groups are opposed to, to the use of, of violence, um, even in defense. I can think of a couple like the Mennonites or certain Christian denominations. Or even Buddhists. Yeah. I think that also a lot of it comes from the 60s era with... Uh, I mean, a lot was accomplished with, with non-violent non struggle in the 60s, and I think a lot of that has kind of fallen out now, the kind of the emphasis on extreme non-violence, because a lot of the civil liberties that, are, that were won, we're now starting to see some backslide on those. I think that people are becoming aware that non-violence may be a good way to win some of our goals that we're going for, but I don't think that... Uh, that it's something that can create a concrete, solid... I don't know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> I, I think we sort of know what you mean. Do you want to go on to your next point? However, I think we need to add that one of our board members, after reading it, actually had some insightful things to say about pacifism in that when utilized in a way in which the oppressor's could only ever respond in ways that would only ever have a negative effect on them, no matter what they do, then pacifism can be useful. And I yeah. agree with that. Uh, personally, I don't see many ways in which that, can, uh, that could really happen. And he made a strong point that a lot of people who have promoted pacifism have said that it takes a very strong person to be a pacifist in the face of of serious danger and not back down. Now, I personally wouldn't like to be in a situation where violence is committed against me because I would feel a strong need to defend myself. The common defense of being a pacifist is usually that if we are strictly nonviolent and never use any force in any way whatsoever, then we are setting an example for the world to follow and all that stuff. Yeah. I have no idea what to think about. I don't think one is able to set a very good example if you're dead. And being a pacifist, if you all hold hands and make a circle around the mm -hmm. tank, the tank is going to roll over you. <laughs> well, I do think there is a serious problem with the sort of humanity grant to our oppressors to think that if we're not committing violence, violence won't be committed against us, that there's some sort of... Uh, sort of metaphysical shield that pacifism gives you. If you're not encouraging violence in the world, then people are going to see you as peaceful and not be violent towards you. And we know that's not true. We've seen nonviolent struggles that have been taken over by the use of violence by police and other groups. Well, it's not a matter of being taken over. It's a matter of being brutally suppressed. Yeah, like uh, the Freedom Riders that were dragged off of buses and beaten by the police and by white supremacist groups. I would sort of say this. If you want to employ nonviolent tactics, you sort of have to use a little bit of media savvy. You have to be able to exploit it in such a way that reveals the enforcers of the oppression as the goons that they are. I read an interesting article about a fighter, a mixed martial artist named Jeff Monson, who is an anarchist in Washington State. And there was an interesting story, made him sort of a local hero. He was out there uh, blocking a road with some other anarchists that some military supplies were being transported on, if memory serves. And the police threatened him with tasering. And they told him... We're not going to discuss this. You're going to move or we're going to tase you. Monson motioned to a video camera nearby and said, It's not going to look very good on the news if you guys come up and tase an unarmed man who isn't doing anything. If the camera hadn't been there, he probably would have been tased and that would have been the end of the story. Yeah. 
you chase someone and then it's taped and ends up on the news. I mean, a lot a lot of people look at that and go, "Well, they were obstructing our, you know, whatever our our government's business or whatever." And yeah, I, I don't know if that's exactly a a clear cut thing. And of course, there was that viral video hit with that student at the University of Florida who was disrupting a speech by who was it by? I don't know. John Kerry. John Kerry. Yeah, that's what I thought. Disrupted a speech. The campus police brutally overreacted, and you know his scream of "Don't tase me, bro!" became a punchline. The, it, well, it, it, that, that that whole thing became a huge joke, and really, who remembers anything about the incident other than him going "Don't tase me, bro." <laughs> It, that says something about the power of the media too. Where this kid didn't obviously didn't deserve to be tased. I mean, he's really sort of remembered as a jackass who got tased for being annoying, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Moving on to point number two: impediment to the success or achieving what we'd like. I feel is the overuse or the abuse of of drugs and alcohol. What did the hippies in? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, that kind of connects these movements, the hippie pacifists that are doing drugs. It's kind of difficult to organize a movement and when you're, like, high all the time. You know? Well, I, th- I think that there was, within that hippie subculture, there were a lot of movements for social justice, and there were a lot of movements for uh, ending the war that was going on. But I think that, to a large extent, this lifestyle of, of hedonism and just abuse of drugs just contributed to to this inability of other people to take the, the movement seriously. And uh, I think that the overuse of drugs was a destructive force within that subculture. And it certainly drains the bank accounts and the attention spans of the people in the movement. And it also, in many ways, drains their credibility... Uh, some of these drugs can be manufactured in the United States, but a lot of them cause a lot of bloodshed overseas when you're importing drugs. Yeah. And definitely, you can just say that you're a bunch of druggies, and it to me, it kind of has to do with your priorities. Is it important that you use a certain substance, or is it important that people see you as uh, being for something else? Like, people that would their rallying cry would be legalize marijuana as a political statement. And that's kind of talking about what you're saying with the hedonism issue, when your your main issue is in identity politics of how you want to enjoy yourself. Yeah. In the 60s, and that generation, they kind of rationalized this use of drugs as a means of raising consciousness. And getting your mind. like that, the drugs would somehow elevate people that maybe weren't aware of things that were going on in the world to this level of understanding, and they would, you know, it would click and they would get it, and all of a sudden they'd become hippies too. I mean, really, what the drugs were doing was just creating a sense of euphoria within these people, and maybe, maybe they did come to some sort of realizations while under the influence of the drugs but it's just it's kind of naive to think that just disseminating these drugs within a culture is just going to bring about a a sense of consciousness and going to alleviate some problems that way i'm going to say that drugs do often sort of create a community experience a shared experience between people but i guess the question is aren't there other ways to create those sort of experiences and here's, here's the other question here now, are, are we advocating more of a straight-edge position here? I'm, that's not well, really you, the angle I'm coming from. In the actual written thing that you talk about, you make a point of it being about escapism. Yeah. And I think that's really what it's about. If you're using these things, or really anything, drugs, alcohol, TV, uh, food... Video games, video, video pornography, games, whatever. Whatever. If you're trying to escape from reality, then you're never going to be able to deal with reality... Realistically, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) Alcohol, Brian. I'm not really coming from the angle of the straight edge angle. I I don't think that people need to eschew the use of drugs completely. I think that you can use drugs sparingly and responsibly, 
and I think that you can achieve a sort of middle path. I think that everyone does need an outlet for stress, and if some people choose to unwind from a whole week of wage slavery by having a few drinks, I don't think that's something that's going to be detrimental to them. I think but if they're, if they're consuming large amounts of alcohol or drugs... If you're doing it to escape from like your whole life, yeah. wallowing in this sort of deadening of your brain cells, I mean, go ahead and do that, but you're not going to be a very effective part of this movement. There's a great danger in being either pole, you know, either being drugs are great and everyone should be doing them, or drugs are horrible and they're a huge problem in our society and everyone should quit them and that's going to be our focus as a political focus. And it's not just drugs. As far as forms of escape go, television is huge. People that just spend their entire day after they get home from work sitting in front of the television. Or the internet. Or the internet. Uh, World of Warcraft. Yeah, World of Warcraft. (laughs) There you go. Well, drugs, including alcohol, are a form of escape and an attempt to relieve what's wrong, whether it's personal problems or whether it's you just do not feel like you fit in to the culture that you're in or you don't feel like the world that you were born into is what you wanted it to be and, and you know, you're kind of disillusioned with everything and you're trying to escape it. I think that um, just trying to escape, I mean, when you could actually be actively trying to make things better, you could actually be joining a struggle to make a better world where people wouldn't have to resort to things like drugs to alleviate what they see as as being the cause of all their problems. Well, while we're on the matter of escapism, I think your next pillar is actually also in the realm of escapism. It's we're talking about television and drugs and video games. We're talking about escapes of a sort of a natural basis, but there's also an escapism of a supernatural basis, isn't there, Brian? Yeah, and that's one of the other points I was going to highlight is just this kind of naivete or this over-willing acceptance of of religion and, and pseudoscience within the left. I don't think this is necessarily, along with drugs and alcohol... Specifically with the left, I yeah. think we would be talking about new agey kind of yeah. thing. These problems... The number two and number three aren't strictly limited to the left. A more broad problem that affects humanity um, in general. I I do think that there is quite a bit of this acceptance, this naivete when it comes to religion within the left. I could be wrong, but I I think that it's more so, you see more so of it in the left than in some other political circles. And not necessarily the mainstream religions, like Christianity, I mean, if you're talking about evangelical Christianity, that's something that has become a right-wing phenomenon. Well, something the right uh, likes to exploit. Yeah. It's certainly something that the average right-wing reactionary is probably heavily diluted in. Yeah. On the left, you see this kind of predominance of Eastern religions, New Ageism, things like that. Buddhism. and Yeah, paganism. Yeah. I think it's damaging, again, because it does take away from that ability for people to view us seriously if people are on the left are going to be proponents of things that, uh, like religious claims or, or pseudoscientific claims that really don't have any sort of backing to them. Well, so, maybe uh, the left just I, hasn't truly seized on the power of crystals. <laughs> Yeah, maybe that's the key. More crystals, more tantric, uh, more tantric meditation. Sex. Yeah, tantric. <laughs> more meditation and things like that. Maybe that's the power. Global orgasm. <laughs> you you want to mention the wank for peace? I'm not super familiar with that. I try <laughs> you, not to think You know of about that, that Jackson. <laughs> okay, we'll talk about this. There's, I mean, there is actually, we're, when we're on the matter of new age pseudoscience, there are some... I think aging hippie types It's where a lot of this new age stuff comes from. Thank you, hippies. This is going to be the Bash the Hippie show, I yeah. think. <laughs> and there's a couple of them. They have this campaign on the internet, and I don't know the website off the top of my head, so you might have to do a Google search. But the basic idea is that one day a year, 
everybody needs to masturbate and have an orgasm and that somehow that personal inner peace will lead to peace in the world. Because it's worked so well so far. And that I think that's more what we're talking about. Not so much the like the Wiccans and whatever. Because generally, I find them to be okay. Particularly the pagans, they seem relatively level-headed. I don't find much problem with... Probably a few who are just so obsessed with their little spirituality, uh, spiritual beliefs that uh, they're just too wrapped up in it to ever really see and deal with the actual concrete aspects of the world. I'm not too familiar, but... Like, oh, redirect your mental energy and all this crap. <laughs> and that, that seems to be where these kind of spiritual beliefs... Pray for peace. Fall. Yeah, yeah pray for peace. Pray for you know, whatever, the troops to come home or whatever. Uh, yeah, that's how I think that it can be insidiously harmful in that... You know, religion does kind of detract from the sense that, you know, we need to get our hands dirty and get out there and come up with solutions for these problems and we need to go out and actually actively do something. Instead, there's this option of maybe we can just pray to some space daddy or uh, some cosmic Well, deity. even Even further than that, I remember from my religious experience in churches talking about praying for our leaders so that they make the right decisions. Having God intervene for you to uh, take care of these issues. Yeah. Prayer is the actual physical action in that context. Now, we can obviously rant against religion all day long here, but it'd be sort of, it's important for us also not to swing the pendulum too far the other way into the terrain of militant atheism. Isn't that right, Brian? Yeah, that's one of like the, some people we know. That's one of the other criticisms that I had is just the the other side of the coin of that religious acceptance would be just the uh, attitude of the the hardline atheist that is uh, just kind of overbearing, has the more rational than thou attitude, and just has this view that religious is a, is a wholly negative force. Well, it's which the, in, in it's reality, this belief, it's this belief that. Religion and any kind of spirituality is the number one source of everything yeah. bad that ever happened in the universe, negative. ever. Well, again, yeah. we're going back to identity politics, and this being the most important issue, yeah. sort of way of looking if ev at it. If everybody in the world was an atheist, we would just be in paradise, and everything would <laughs> yeah. be... We would, we, hold, we would be able to work things out, because... We would hold hands and love each other and sing <laughs> kumbaya. No, but nobody would have, <laughs> nobody would have, all of the, have all of the dogmas that religions have, and instead they would have all the dogma that atheism has. <laughs> That would make everything better. This sort of militant atheist attitude that thinks that religion is the cause of all the problems, I think it's wrong. I think that when you look back over history, you'll see that religion, it has been a negative force and it has caused plenty of warfare and it's reinforced things like patriarchy and homophobia, just an o a general sort of xenophobia. But I think that you'll also see that religion has been a positive force. And that it's, you know, been associated with a lot of humanitarian work. It's been associated with bringing people together and reinforcing good ethics. I think a lot of these hardline atheists, they really don't like to look at that. They just want to see the negative side of religion. They don't want to ever think about it actually being a positive force. And I think within the left that we should recognize that liberal religious belief, which is not inherently dogmatic can be a positive force for liberation and it can be a positive force for creating change in society and reinforcing good ethics, positive ethics. I would say this sort of view is actually similar to religious beliefs in some sense or any sort of identity politics in that it's comforting to think that the world is so simple that prayer or removing religion or anything like that can so quickly solve fix things. Yeah. When you simplify things, you feel, in a sense, empowered. If you can just take care of this one issue, then the world is going to be a seriously better place. A lot of good criticism does come from a lot of hardline atheists. Like, like Richard Dawkins comes to mind. He's a really outspoken critic of religion. And I think that there is good, positive criticism that comes out of people like that and out of groups like that. But I think that they do tend to take it too far. Or what about think, Christopher Hitchens? Yeah. <laughs> they do have this view that really a lot of the problems stem from religion when it's it's obviously, at least to me, and with someone with more of a 
to someone that's researched what's going on in the world, they can see that it's not just religion. Like, for instance, uh, I think a lot of people in the United States, and I was talking about this on the last show, I think a lot of people in the United States do think that the problems in the Middle East stem from this idea that everyone over there is a religious zealot mm -hmm. and their religion, Islam, is a, a religion of war and that's why these people are attacking. They're attacking us because they think that we don't believe in their idea of God, but the problems over there are much more complex. I mean, you have anger over there from U.S. intervention, U.S. imperialism taking over, setting up their own regimes, puppet governments, funding Kill Israel. Which, killing people, bombing yeah. hospitals. I mean, really, you're talking about this hardline atheism. I mean, really, the, the dark side of it, you're talking about, you're, you're touching on that, really, the dark side of it here, where particularly for someone like Christopher Hitchens, who is a neocon, yeah. politically. Who has said, said things like, we need to put a bullet through every god-haunted brain, or something like that, as paraphrase. These people invariably become apologists for hardline American imperialism in the Middle East, yeah. in a way not terribly dissimilar that Christians in Britain might have supported the Christianizing missions in India and elsewhere. While I have the floor here, we're already at the halfway point of our mm. program, and we're just going through Brian's latest essay called Criticisms of the Left, and we were just talking about religion and its counterparts here. And You know, when you're talking about evangelical Christianity or their mirror opposites in evangelical atheism, like Christopher Hitchens or Dawkins, you can't really talk about these people without bringing up superiority complexes. Isn't that <laughs> right, Brian? I love the order of your hey, points yeah. here because they really... Segway! Segway! <laughs> I think the value of atheism, before we move off, is in saying, well, religion as an issue is dead to us, and let's move on. And let's move on. Superiority well, complex. Well, I, I just wanted to make one final point. I think that what a lot of the militant atheists fail to realize is that some religious belief can be compatible with sort of the scientific worldview that a lot of us promote. I think that Western Buddhism, which is more of like a philosophy, can definitely be conducive to thinking scientifically. And there's even a quote by the Buddha himself. Unitarian Universalists, of course, are our religious uh, allies, liberal allies. But yes, yeah, superiority complexes. I think that within the left, I've, I've noticed this, and basically my experience is through community activism and then also being on forums. And I do feel that there is kind of this uh, air of condescension within the left that, uh, that the, the people of the world that are suffering, they, they, uh, they just don't get it. And, and therefore they somehow deserve the plight that they're in because, you know, this should be this should be so apparent to them that they're being exploited. And really, because I Because mean, if you're stupid enough to vote for John McCain, you deserve him and fuck you, right, yeah, Brian? Yeah, sort of that kind of idea. And I think that a lot of people kind of fail to understand just this like multitude of, of distractions and facades that are employed to, to keep people unaware of what's being done, how people are being exploited, and how the rich tend to keep getting richer as the poor still stay poor and there's just really no justice within our society and, and a lot of this this idea that this is the way it has to be that there's no option for change and, and any 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 sort of uh, activism toward change is just being idealist or being utopian well, I think and there's I think a lot of misconceptions you were touching on the economic issues where the top 10% of the wealth bracket thinks they're in the top 1% and people really have this feeling that if there's any sort of redistribution of wealth or any sort of taking back, that it's going to hurt us in this country as, as wealthy as we are. I think that what we should do is become more aware of why people are unaware. Is it because that they're just stupid and they don't get it, or is it because all of these things are being employed to keep them from understanding what's going on? As long as it doesn't involve actually dealing with them, I'm all for it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's that's a large part of our goal in Lunk is to create an independent media for the community here, make people aware of what's going on. Instead of having to rely on 
corporate media, which is obviously bent to satisfy the people that are in power. They don't report on things that are going on because they don't want people to be aware of what really is going on. And people get distracted by their own personal issues. Moving on to identity politics, which we did an entire show on. <laughs> I one of the oh. another one of the the points I wanted to talk about or the criticisms was the over intellectualism. It seems like a lot of literature, a lot of books written, a lot of um, propaganda from that comes from the left is just overly intellectual. Kind of assuming that everyone that's going to read this can understand this this lofty language and scholarly language that's used. Um, and I, I think that we need to realize that we should be not condescending with with the literature that we're putting out, but uh, we should avoid using the sort of pedantic, lofty type of, of rhetoric that uh, a lot of people do not understand because they were forced into employment at the expense of a higher education. And a lot of these people aren't afforded with the luxury of being able to to spend free time studying or, or going to classes where they can be exposed to There's a disconnect here, and I think it's that there's things meant to reach people and there's things meant to have a sort of political analysis, and you really do have to create your own sort of language because in a reactionary society like this that's based on exploiting people and not teaching them what's happening to them, there is no language to discuss these issues. I mean, we're using terms and concepts that people don't even think about. So there is sort of a gap there. It's sort of a difficult question. I mean, you're having a conversation about immigration, say. And, of course, in the media, it's illegal immigration, which obviously, I mean, that's, I mean, that's a... That's a term that's been coined by people who want to restrict immigration or outlaw illegal immigration. There is a point where you want to argue on behalf of people moving freely across borders where you can't really use that term to a point. And someone, has, someone eventually has to come along and invent the, a, the, an opposing term, undocumented immigration, to, to explain the same thing without the same sort of moral stigma attached to it. Yeah. But I mean, there are... There are ways of coining terms that people without political science degrees can still read. Right. You don't you don't want to be creating terms that you have to take, you know, junior level philosophy classes at a university to understand. And I think we have to recognize that in a sense language can be oppressive. You can teach people to think linguistically in a way that that leads them to think a certain way, like calling people illegal, that automatically gives people a certain perception and gives them certain ideas. I think that there there needs to be, again, a sort of middle path here where we're, we're not being patronizing, but at the same time we're not... And, and I find this when I'm writing uh, on my own. I, I, I tend to use words... And, and not even realize it at certain times, and maybe not everyone is going to be familiar with this this word. And ironically, there's some of these words within this, this, it, this essay. Interestingly, <laughs> within the confines of even your intellectualism point, <laughs> you use words including propaganda, patronizing, and we get into pedantic, lofty. One of my personal favorites, esoteric. Yes. <laughs> no, I I think I've said this well in saying that sometimes. I find terms to explain myself so well that no one understands me. Um, maybe it's due to my superiority complex, but <laughs> I don't have a, I don't have a problem with any of those words. Well, you just have a superiority complex. Uh. Yeah. I mean, l- 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 luckily, luckily, I have come to realize that I I don't actually think I am a leftist. I don't know where I don't think I fall on the left or right spectrum. Therefore, I can follow or completely violate any of these points as I see fit. <laughs> so, screw you all. <laughs> well, we've been sort of playing with the idea of identity politics quite a bit. That's the next point on yeah. here, so we should probably zip through this really quick. Yeah, we're we really not to... taking we're really not making very good time here. At I all. don't think we need to spend too much time on identity politics, especially since people should go to our website. And listen to the show we did specifically about identity politics a few number, weeks ago. Number six. But but the main argument that I had against that is that if you're just focusing on the concerns of, of 
your own group that's being uh, oppressed or exploited, then you're allowing this environment where more powerful groups or the more powerful are, are able to oppress the less powerful. So you're not really tackling the fundamental root of the problem. You're not being ra- radical in your approach. Yeah. So we, I don't think we need to spend too much time on that. And, uh, the next Unless you want us to spend more time yeah. on it, in which case email us at contact at lunkradio.org. Good. Thank you very, very much, good. Monty. So you're also hating on the counterculture. Uh, What's that no, about? No, not, not necessarily. Not all of it. <coughs> I'm, I'm talking about extreme forms of counterculture. Uh, I do think that a lot within our culture is what people would consider toxic. I think that's accurate so, uh, summary of it. I think that it, it a lot of it within our culture is damaging to individuals. Uh, um, okay, okay, think, Brian. I hate television. I, I cannot watch network TV. The shows insult my intelligence, and the commercials are beyond obnoxious. But what am I missing out on within the culture at large by not watching television? Well, I, I think that I think that you could actually make that argument that there is nothing good on TV, and you you would probably be pretty accurate. But uh, there, there's this. Uh, the strain within the left that thinks that, uh, you know, you should just destroy your TV because there's nothing good on it, or you should just not watch TV at all. It's just a form of escapism. You should just stay away from your TV. But, but TV, or the use of, uh, of, of uh, TV as a medium, can be useful. And, it, and there can, there is programs on television that are not all ridiculously... Uh, you know, insulting to people's intelligence, or it's not all aimed at selling a product. I mean, there are there are th- things that you can watch on TV that that uh, can enrich you. There may very well be a lot of good stuff on t- t- TV somewhere. Um, I have three letters regarding that, though DVD. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, this kind of th- this idea that TV as a medium is just completely mm-hmm. bad. It just kind of ties into this. Uh, this idea that um, you know technology is completely bad, which isn't the next on the list, but we, we can skip ahead if you got a good <coughs> segue. And we'll but, uh, but yeah, there's this idea that um, television as a medium is polluting, and, and watching television is just dumbing yourself down. There's nothing good that you can watch on television, and um, I, ju- I just I don't find that to be accurate. I, I think that. Um, I think that when you take this idea of counterculture, opposing what you view to be damaging within a culture, and taking it to an extreme where you just say that the culture, the culture that we live in, is entirely bad, it's entirely wrong, is sort of similar to being like a, a, a hardline atheist and saying that religion is completely bad. It's just you can't, you can't. Uh, you can't just throw away something completely because you don't like the way it's being employed. Well, I think that tends to encourage people to sort of be anti-conformist, to be the inverse of something rather than actually thinking about it for themselves. You say something is is the epitome of what's wrong, just go and do the opposite without even thinking about it. Brian, I think you're just trying to create an excuse for being able to enjoy Jackass and Tom Green so much. <laughs> Perhaps, yeah, I could be. Does anybody here watch TV? I I, I watch TV. Well, mainly DVDs, but uh, I mean, actually, watch, I watch TV. A lot of. I don't watch the news. I watch. Uh, I'll watch uh, some shows, some sitcoms that I like, but I don't. Uh, sitcoms. <laughs> <laughs> you watch some cheesy sitcoms too. I don't. No, I don't. You, you watch. You don't have uh, cable. I don't even have TV anymore. I don't have one of those converter boxes. Um, Not that I want one of those converters. I know you have a guilty pleasure or two out there. I do like Star Trek. But, you know, <laughs> that's, not that's a on guilty, TV. That's not a guilty that's pleasure. That's a, that's a highly sort of intellectual kind of show. You can't, you can't, really, you can't really say that and like feel bad about it. It's all, it. It is a guilty pleasure at first mention, mm-hmm. though, because people do have a misconception. We need to sort of probably do, maybe touch on science fiction. Do we next should do an next, episode no, no, on Star Trek. Next show is Star Trek versus Star Wars. <laughs> 
But but the next point that I wanted to talk about mm. was uh, it, it's sort of related to this, but this strict anti-reformism. The radical left focuses on revolutionary action um, from the bottom up, the people being oppressed, taking back what's been taken from them, trying to level the playing field, achieve some sort of social justice where human beings are treated equally. Um, but there's this, this sense that we cannot support any sort of reform brought about by political parties and that we should just be antagonistic toward um, political parties. And, and I think that view is, is correct in, in some senses, but I think that we can work together with reformist groups and we can work together with political parties occasionally and support uh, some movements toward reform. So we can achieve, you know, as we're working to raise consciousness, awareness within the people that are being um, oppressed, that we can also su support re reforms that will help help us at the same time. I got a question for you. Can you support reforms without being a reformist? I I think you can to a certain extent. I think that if you what's the definition of reformist? Well, a reformist I, is someone who supports. I think a reformist <coughs> is someone is someone is someone who thinks reforms will solve all our problems. Well, it's it's this idea that we can take a system that is inherently exploitative, like capitalism, and mitigate it and make it less make it less of an exploitative system, make it more just and. Um, Generally, when I'm talking about reformism, I'm talking about reform reforms to the capitalist system to make it more uh, just and fair. Totally. Not I, that think, I think I think that reforms can be helpful. Yeah, I think that it's, that's it's my more, view. It's more like the thing is, tr it's it's more like treating reforms like like life support that are just they're just keeping a, a system yeah. going and, and and in some ways actually preventing being able to just let it die and overcome it well, is the problem. Yeah, to problem. use to use that analogy where you're kind of relieving symptoms with these reforms. And we do need to tackle the root of what's causing disease. Like if you have a, think, if you have a toothache, then yeah, you should you should take some medication that numbs the pain, but you still have to go to the dentist. Yeah, exactly. Now, I think one of the problems here is uh seeing these as ways of looking at things that are exclusive. Now, reformist as a term tends to mean only reform, but I don't think we have to see revolutionary politics and uh, reform as exclusive. That you can't support reforms, like Brian says, and still want to have a revolutionary or radical change in the structure of our society. That's kind of the angle I'm coming from, is that I do think that we need fundamental changes. I think that the way... Um, our society is organized needs to be changed. I think that we need uh, a democratic society, not this kind of false democracy that's uh, what they call a republic, a representative democracy, where you elect usually powerful elites to, to make decisions for you. I think that we need a, a democratically controlled society. It's and funny, though, um, I was going to say, because if you say republic or representative democracy sort of things to people. People will go, what's that? They don't really know the form of government that we actually have Yeah, in they this think country. we just have a democracy. <laughs> but, I mean, democracy, the root meaning of the word, is rule by the people. That's Greek. And do we really have a rule by the people in this country? Mm -hmm. We don't. And I think with it, we need those fundamental changes. And then after that we have changes toward a more democratic society, we can also make changes toward society where that which is needed to sustain life and, and, and sustain happiness among people needs to be distributed evenly. Yeah, I, I would people. say one of the easiest ways to tell if a society is democratic is to look at the distribution of resources and who really has a say in that. Now, your average person in the United States doesn't have any say on whether we go to war, where resources go, if bailouts happen... Uh, those resources are decided where they're distributed from above. Should we be antagonistic toward uh, reforms like Medicare or Social Security, things like that? Critical, but not antagonistic. Yeah. 
Like yeah, this will be this will have to be a subject for another show. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is the. I mean, obviously, re- reform versus revolution. That dichotomy really deserves its own show. Well, I want I want to move on to uh, further down because I want I well, want to talk about authoritarianism. We should. Well, the I, next point. Was I think we can save that one for last because that's sort of on a different yeah. plane. We'll try to get through these. So yeah, authoritarianism. We've seen that authoritarianism fails because Soviet Union. Yeah. <laughs> what we have, the United States, is an authoritarian government, I believe. Mm-hmm. I think that um, it's not a leftist authoritarian. Yeah, no, it's is the thing. Yes, but uh, I'm talking about uh, this this idea that uh, government needs to control every aspect of society in that we can't leave society to be governed by its people. And I, I would say that mercifully on the left, I think authoritarian ideologies are really dying off. I mean, I yeah. think Stalinism has probably killed the credibility of those ideologies, certainly for the next several decades. It's really, it's, it's really the anarchist and libertarian ideologies on the left that are really the ascendant ones. We do also have to worry about authoritarian currents within libertarian ideologies now, too. I think that a lot of our a lot of our protests and a lot of our actions are dominated by a sort of uh, liberal moral authority when we when we take actions. Um, well there's sort of a view that well, when we're talking about the radical there's left still, that the still... radical left doesn't have any authority or any accredit authority in another sense, any sort of credibility. So that a sort of more mainstream or centralized view uh, has takes that sort of moral authority. And I forgot what I was going to say, so never mind. <laughs> All right. And I, I think I think authoritarianism goes hand in hand with the the idea of vanguardism that we need uh, a group, a political party, to be the vanguard, be the front of the movement, to get us political power, and then use that political power to support this movement for change. And I, I, I'm opposed to this idea of, of vanguardism because I think that the movement for change can only be brought about by the people themselves. I don't think that a party can truly represent everyone and succeed in bringing about change. I, I think that there needs to be an awareness within the majority of people for a movement to su- succeed. And with v- vanguardist movements, you have, you know, maybe a, a, a portion of the population supports this party, but unless... Well, you're still having a you're still having a system being inflicted upon right. people. I mean, no matter what the actual politics are, it's still it's still it's it's still not actually the will of the people. And I think vanguardism is essentially non-democratic. It creates sort of different levels, and one of the issues is education and the way people look at it. Well, if you're in the vanguard, you are essentially right uh, by default. And uh, you may think you you know better than other people. You have a right to more resources. You create you create a sort of class gap within your own movement. And of course, this is something that deserves its own show yeah. down the road. Too. All of these deserve their own show. And we'll we'll move on then to lifestyleism. What is what is this idea of lifestyleism? Uh, it's a popular idea, I think, within <coughs> anarchist circles. Oh, well, a very popular idea. This no idea that living a sort of revolutionary lifestyle, living against the system, living Off living in a yeah, living in a way where you're not part of the system or where you're living contrary to it and that's your your way of fighting the system. How successful can one do that? Well, I, I would I would I would argue that it's impossible it's, to it's, live it's, a revolutionary lifestyle in this system. If you do that, you then you die. Unless you have vast sums of cash at your disposal. Well, in which case you're not exactly a revolutionary, yeah. are you? <laughs> not exactly living out of the system if you're um, yeah. supporting it financially. <laughs> but I I think well, if, that you, if you if you have that much money, then clearly you're not actually fighting the system then because. How did you get that money? There, there are different versions of lifestyleism too. I mean, there are people who are. I mean, you have the squatter movement. People who, yeah. will, who will set up shop in abandoned buildings and will eat out of dumpsters. Yeah, I mean, this, this is again. This, there's its own show too. But uh, yeah, go ahead. I mean, I mean, there are very, very. Di- there are different forms of of what lifestyleism is. 
a lot of times lifestyleism is tied into your your last point here before we double back to number ten is primitivism, and a lot of these lifestyleists will also adopt sort of primitivist ways. They'll a number of them will take pride in you know living without electricity, living without uh, you know water pipes. Yeah, a lot of times you you do kind of get this sort of martyr complex or a sort of vanguard feel that they're setting they're setting the bar. Yeah, I think the the most damaging aspect of this is the idea that we can change things by living our lives um, in a way that's contrary to to society. I think that uh, I think it's damaging because we need everyone, um, everyone that opposes the way things are right now we need those people to join together join with us and help to make changes and i think that if you're just self-centered you're thinking about yourself you're thinking about your your circle of friends you're not doing anything to help alleviate what's being done to people i, I would i would just want to drop in just a small sort of concrete example i mean you'll find people like you know lifestyleists who maybe want to have you know some little organic farm acreage and just well, we're not, you know, we're, you know, we're eating good, healthy food, and we're not poisoning the planet. But if you're spending all your time on your little organic acreage, you know, while Monsanto and big corporate agribusiness are polluting the usable soil over ninety nine percent of the planet, you're still doomed. Yeah. And I think, I think you, know, you and your family might get the cancer a generation or two later, but you're doomed too. And I think that it, it hey, is, I'm the doomed guy. Doom, <laughs> doom. Doom. I think it is important. You're making to, me sound optimistic. <laughs> I think it Go is on. important to to adopt this this sort of revolutionary lifestyle and live your life the way you think that a life everyone should live. And the idea of living on an organic farm and doing things like that those are all good things. But you you have to couple that that sort of lifestyle that you've adopted and try to promote that lifestyle and try to make actual changes in the way the rest of the world operates. Instead of just focusing on yourself, it's, it's just when these people develop this lifestyle just to go escape into it and, and believe that they can become separate from everything that's going on, that's when it's damaging. And I think a good phrase to sort of summarize what Jackson said was that if you manage to live off the grid, if you manage to not be a part of capitalism, how can you hope to change anything when you're not a part of it? And, now, right now we're and of course we have, we have 45 seconds left. And it's a good thing, too, because we're a bunch of self-righteous know-it-alls, and we have no need for self-criticism, which was the last point, which... Brian, you got 30 seconds. You Take us so home. goddamn cheesy with your segues. <laughs> I love it. Take us home, Brian. I, I just think that there needs to be more of this. There needs to be more discussion, more internal criticism of our movement, trying to make it better, trying to uh, come up with a, a way where we can uh, make the movement for social change, something that is actually something to be taken seriously, something that is a political force and a a force for change. Thank you very much. And that's all for now. For Brian, Andrew, and Monty, I'm Jackson. We'll see you next time.